has been poured out in our hearts. The love of God, then, guarantees we will not be put to shame. Now, in this passage, we see that the love of God is actually demonstrated very tangibly by the death of Jesus Christ. Anyone can say, I love you, but love, biblically speaking, consists of actions. God tells us in many places in the scriptures that he loves us, but in the death of his son, he showed us very practically, concretely, what his love is. So, the death of Christ is a demonstration of God's love for you. And it has implications for your salvation. We're going to look at this in two points this evening. Number one, the demonstration of God's love in verses 6 through 8. And number two, the implications of God's love in verses 9 through 11. Now then, the demonstration of God's love. How did God show his love? Not only did he show that he loves us, but he showed us the depth of his love by sending his son to die. This love, the depth of it, is displayed in three ways in verses 6 through 8. Number one, by the person who died. Number two, by the persons for whom he died. And number three, by the timing of his death. Consider, first of all, the demonstration of God's love in the person who died. In verses 6 and 8, we read that it was Christ who died for you, none other than the Lord's anointed. And in verse 10, we are reminded that the Christ who died for you was none other than the Son of God. Jesus, in a place in John's gospel, says, Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Humanly speaking, that is a strong demonstration of love. But I think we are seeing something here in Romans describing a difference between human love and divine love. It is not really a fair exchange, is it, the Son of God for the souls of men? But that is the extent, the depth of the love of God that he gave, not a mere man for men, or not even many men for men, but that he gave the very Son of God for men. It is a divine offering for a human reward. So then, first of all, the person who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you know was innocent, harmless, He was, in every way, the perfect servant of God. In all the ways that we have failed to serve God, and all the ways that we have failed to obey God, to worship Him, and to honor Him, the Lord Jesus Christ did those things, and He did them perfectly, and He did them without fail. And so the person who died was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look for a moment with me at the people for whom Christ died. We are described, first of all, in verse 6 as weak. Now, this word weak is oftentimes used in the Bible to describe physical illnesses. But here it is obviously being used to describe a spiritual inability. Christ died for us when we were weak, meaning we were unable to save ourselves. 
And why is that? Why would we be unable to save ourselves? Well, because we had been sold into sin. We had been given over to sin. We were inclined in our mind and in our hearts towards sin. We are utterly incapable, as it were, of pleasing God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are described as weak, ineffectual, impotent, not able A second word that describes us in verse 6 is ungodly. This refers to irreverent and impious people. Psalm 1 describes the ungodly as those who are like chaff that the wind will blow away. And it declares that the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, and indeed they shall perish. That's precisely what the apostle is referring to here. He's saying that we, before Christ died for us, were ungodly. We are further described as unrighteous and evil. Now I take those terms from the contrast in verse 7. Verse 7, if you remember, it says that scarcely for a righteous will one die, yet perhaps for a good man would someone even dare to die. Beloved, we are not in ourselves righteous or good, so I hope you will accept the conversion that I have made saying that we are unrighteous and bad. Now there is a subtle distinction between a righteous man and a good man. Oftentimes we can use them as synonyms. A a good man is righteous and a righteous man is good. And we could describe a righteous man as good and vice versa. But when they're used together like this, there is a subtle distinction. Very simply, a righteous man is a just man. A man who obeys the law. He gives to each his due, and he does not take from anyone what is not his. A good man, in addition to being righteous, is benevolent. He is kind. He is giving. He is one who not only gives to each man his due, but gives to each what is good for him. Do you see the difference then? There's a subtle difference. So, so there's a slight escalation in the qualities of the, of the men for whom people will not die, right? A righteous man. Will people die for a righteous man? Scarcely. In fact, the word is hardly or with great difficulty will someone die for a righteous man. Ordinarily, righteous men are killed, right? Ordinarily, righteous men are hated by other men. There was really only one true righteous man in and of himself. That was the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was hated. So no one died for Jesus, did they? But then there's a a good man. So maybe once in a while someone will dare to die for a good man. This is to say we might be willing to die for someone who has benefited us, who has been good to us who has been a benefactor to us. Have we been a benefit to the Lord God? You see the the depth of the comparison here, right? That the depth of God's love is being demonstrated in that he died for those who not only were not righteous, but were evil and were of no benefit whatsoever to him. Of course we are neither righteous nor good. In fact, as we read in verse 8, we are sinners. We are sinners. We are characterized as those who break God's laws. 
And not just sinners, but if we jump down to verse 10 for a moment, we see that we were enemies. Colossians 1.21 says that we were once enemies of God through our wicked works. Enemies, not just not friends, no, enemies. And the, and the animosity between man and God goes both ways. Understand that. It is not merely that we have enmity towards God. Oh, it is mutual. God has enmity towards sinners. God is the enemy to every wicked man. And every wicked man sets himself up as an enemy to God. And so you see, the depth of God's love is really demonstrated by the people for whom his son died. We, we could understand it if he would die for someone who had some value, for someone who loved him, or someone who were righteous, or someone who were his friend. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But the Lord Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. Just yesterday, I was talking with someone on the phone, and they said, I just need to feel like I am worthy of God's love. Oh, dear friends, you do not need to feel like you are worthy of God's love, because number one, you are not worthy of God's love. And number two, the depth of God's love is not found in your worthiness. The depth of God's love is found in his love for unlovable things. Such is his love for you, is that he loved you when you were unworthy. You do not need to feel worthy of God's love. You need to feel the weight of your unworthiness and marvel that your God loved you nonetheless. So that is the people for whom Christ died. Let's look for a moment at the timing of his death. There are two references to time in this passage. First is in the verse, verse 6, when we were still without strength in due time. And then again in verse 8, while we were still sinners. The point of all of this is that God did not wait until we were strong or righteous or good to do something for us. He didn't wait even until we repented or reformed ourselves before he sent his son for us. He didn't even wait for us to be aware of our danger and seek reconciliation with him on our own. He sought us out when we were utterly blind and unaware he sought us out when we had no desire to reconcile with him. Before we could have any closeness to him, before we could be of any benefit for him, that is when he sent his son to die for us. You know, in Genesis chapter 22, we see Abraham's love for the Lord and that he was willing to offer his son his only son, the son whom he loved, even Isaac. Even the Lord speaks as if he's impressed by Abraham's fear for him. But what we're reading about here is something far greater. If you think about it, the Lord was Abraham's strength. Fear not, Abraham. I am your strength. I am your shield. The Lord is God. He is not ungodly. He is God. The Lord 
is righteous and good. The Lord was Abraham's friend. The Lord had given Abraham Isaac. And if if Abraham had rendered Isaac unto the Lord, he would have only been giving back to the Lord what the Lord had already given him. But do you see how much is different in the case of us? God's love is demonstrated for us in his willingness to sacrifice his son for those who are weak, ungodly, unrighteous, evil, sinners, enemies. It is hard for us to contemplate what this is, what it would be like that that we would give our most beloved for an enemy who's bent on our destruction. And that is what every time man sins, he is is saying, I wish I could be God and, and God could be in my place. I wish that I could be God. I would kill God if I could. That's what we say when we sin against him. We seek to topple him from his heavenly throne. But God demonstrates his love for us. Look at verse 8 for just a moment. This is one of those divine but. But God demonstrates, and it's emphatic here, his own love toward us. This is God's personal love. This is the love from God's own heart. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there, friends, is the demonstration of God's love. His love is demonstrated, made plain to you by the death of his son. Nothing greater that God could have given for you. He withheld nothing from you. Now we're going to look for a moment at three implications that follow from Christ's death, that great demonstration of God's love. And we see, first of all, here in verse, verses 9 through 10, two arguments from the greater to the lesser, or they are sometimes called a fortiori, or um, moving from the more difficult to the easy. Okay, we could say something like, um, I have already worked nine hours today, how much easier will it be for me to go home? Right? You've already done the difficult thing. Now how much easier is the easy thing? Or in one place, Jesus asked to, Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven. And the crowds scoffed at that. And he said, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Now, it's interesting because technically it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can verify that. But in order for Jesus to say that, what did he have to do? He had to go to the cross and and purchase the forgiveness of that man's sin. But then, in order to show them he had the power to do it, he healed the man before their eyes. Well, there's something similar going on here. There's There's an argument that starts out with the stronger thing, right? The stronger reason, and then since the stronger reason, the greater difficulty is true, it necessarily follows that the lesser consequence will be true as well. You'll see this very easily here in verses 9 through 10. First of all, since you are justified by Christ's passion, you will be saved from wrath by his intercession. 
That's in verse 9. Paul says, Having now been justified, you shall be saved. Just notice the shift in the verb tenses there. Having now been justified. So, so now is present, and, and having been justified is past tense, right? So you stand here today, you believer in Christ, you stand here today justified. All right, that happened. And you continue in that state of being justified. Then it goes to the future. You shall be saved. He's referring to something yet in the future. So the present status of justification makes certain your future salvation. And just for a moment, I want to mention that oftentimes we need to recognize that that Scripture speaks of our salvation in the past tense, right? I was saved. And sometimes it speaks of it in the present tense. We are being saved. And sometimes it speaks of it in the future tense. We shall be saved. And we have to reckon, we have to have all of those senses of our salvation. It is something in the past. It is something right now. And it is something yet to come. Now, here he says, you shall be saved much more than having now been justified by his blood. His blood is just a, a word for his death. Having been justified by Christ's death, his passion, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You are saved from what? From wrath. Remember, wrath is God's righteous indignation, his, his holy hatred of sin, his pouring out of justice. We read about wrath two other times already in Romans. You remember in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then we got that list of sins. And remember, those, those sins are not things that God is angry at, although he is, but the point in that list is these things are proof that God is angry. So if you want to go back sometime and read through those things, start, start in chapter 1, verse 18, and follow down all of those things, all of those descriptions are evidence of God's anger on a people. But then wrath was again mentioned in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, in a, it's mentioned in reference to a coming day of wrath. The day of wrath that is yet future. The day of wrath on which God will judge mankind and he will render to each one according to his deeds. You need to understand, what I want you to see from this is that Paul is saying because you are justified by Christ's death, you shall be saved from the wrath of God both presently and in the future. In other words, God promises you in your justification by Christ's death that you will be delivered from those things which indicate the wrath of God on earth and you will be spared in that day of judgment when the Lord returns to render justice to every lawbreaker. So you shall be saved not only from the wrath which is revealed in man's uncleanness, his vile passions, his reprobate mind, all of those things are God promises you shall be saved from them, and that coming day of wrath when God renders his righteous judgment. 
Now, how can you be certain of this? Well, first of all, because God has already done the greater work of justifying the ungodly. So which, which do you think is more difficult for God to do? To justify the ungodly or to save the justified? Consider it, beloved. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are reckoned righteous in him. Remember, you are justified by faith and you have peace with God. Plainly, it is easier for God to save the justified from his wrath than it was for him to justify the ungodly. Secondly, still in verse 9, you can be certain of this because being justified by Christ's blood, which again is to say his death, you have a mediator who continually intercedes for you. Where is Jesus right now, beloved? He is in heaven. He's not on the cross anymore, is he? He's not in the grave, is he? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, pleading his blood for you. Pleading the merits of his sacrifice on your behalf. This is, we'll read this again when we come to Romans chapter 8. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who will be the judge on judgment day, that day of wrath? God says that he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So it is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will render the verdict on judgment day. Did he not die to deliver you from judgment? Notice at the end of verse 9, it says your future salvation is through him. Through him. That is to say, he is your mediator. He is continually mediating on your behalf. He is continually, even right now, and he will until the day of his return, be interceding for you, applying his merits on your behalf. Therefore, you can be certain that you will be saved from God's wrath because Christ who died for you was raised to life and he sits at the right hand of God continually pleading his blood for your case. We continue now into verse 10. Since you are reconciled by Christ's death... You shall be saved by his life. Verse 10 says, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, verse 10 is very similar to verse 9. It's the same kind of argument from the, the greater to the lesser. And it also proves, just like verse 9, that your present status makes certain your future salvation. There are two small differences between the two. And the first is this. Instead of justification, like in verse 9, we have the word reconciliation in verse 10. 
And these words are very similar. And everyone who is justified is reconciled. And everyone who is reconciled has been justified. But think of justification as a reference to your legal standing. You've been counted righteous. Legally, in the eyes of God, you are just. You are reconciled. You are, excuse me, you are justified. Reconciliation, however, speaks to a relational status. Okay, this is what happens when people make peace. When, when parties are at enmity and they are reconciled, that speaks to their relationship being set in the proper order. And so in addition to being legally in the right with God, we are also relationally in the right with God. You see, because of your sin, you were God's enemy. And because of Christ's death, you are God's friend. No more than that, you are God's child. We read this again in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how those two go together? Having been justified, we have peace. Take peace as a synonym for being reconciled. Consider then the certainty of your salvation. When you were God's enemy, he sent his son to die for you. Now that you are his friend, you are his child, what will the Lord do in order to save you? There is a second difference at the end of this verse. It says, you shall be saved by Christ's life. At the end of verse 10, saved by Christ's life. So if the death of Christ, his being put to death, was sufficient to reconcile you to God, to make you God's friend, how much more shall his life be sufficient to save you to the uttermost? Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 puts it this way. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here again, I want you to remember that we don't worship a dead Savior. We worship a risen Lord. He not only mediated for us in his humiliation, but he continually mediates for us in his exaltation. So if in his weakness and humiliation he was able to reconcile us to God, how much more in his exaltation, in his reigning and ruling from heaven, will he be able to save us from God's wrath through the power of his eternal resurrected life? You see, in the demonstration of God's love, we, we see both Christ's humiliation and him suffering and dying. And by his death, he purchased your life. But we now worship and serve a living, risen, reigning, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And he has that kind of power at his disposal for your saving. So then if the death of Christ meant justification and reconciliation, you can be certain that the life of Christ means your sanctification and your glorification. Well, we have one more implication in this passage. We've seen two of them, that, that being justified will be saved from God's wrath and being reconciled will be saved from God's wrath. And here's one more implication here in verse 11. 
And not only that. It feels like one of those commercials. But wait, there's more. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This here refers to our response for all that God has done for us in Christ. The apostle here in verse 11 shifts back to the present tense. Literally, we are rejoicing. And not only that, but we are rejoicing. This describes the present experience of believers in Christ. We are rejoicing in God. Did you know this, that it is God's will for you to have joy in him? Children, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And God has made that possible by the death of His Son, right? He has reconciled you to Himself. Forever is all the days until there are no more days. That includes today. God wants us to enjoy Him. That's what the Apostle is talking about about right now when he says when we contemplate the love of God for us and its implications we are rejoicing do you sometimes lack joy do you sometimes find joy hard to come by or maybe crowded out by other feelings other thoughts what might it do for us if when we begin to suffer a lack of joy We were to contemplate God's love for us. Even in the midst of trials and and even in the midst of sorrow and danger and, and in the midst of lack or anything, can't we always rejoice that God showed us his love by sending his son to die for us? He sent his son to justify you, to reconcile you to himself, to save you from his wrath. Now, this demonstration of God's love that we've read about is an objective historical fact. It's something that took place in space and time. A a, a space and time at which we were not. We weren't there to see them crucify the Lord. We were not alive at that time. The Apostle Paul elsewhere describes it. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But you know, there is a difference between the objective demonstration of God's love here, right, by the death of Christ in history, and the saving application of that love to our hearts. What I'm saying is this. We must be sure that Christ for us is not merely the Christ of history, merely the Savior who died sometime back then for those people, but rather Christ is our Christ who died for us. We must move from the objective historical facts to subjective personal beliefs. 
In order for you to obtain all of those benefits of God's love, the justification, the peace, the hope, the reconciliation, salvation, and that joy, you have to be certain that God's love has been set upon you. That has to be our question then, doesn't it? How are we certain that the, demonstrate, that the love God demonstrated was for me? Two things. Two things from the text here tonight. First of all, God himself pours out his love in your heart by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. In verse 5, do you understand that? This is a divine operation. This is something that God must do. Because we are weak. We need God to go first. This is divine operation. But, but our hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by God the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We are powerless to obtain God's love for ourselves. We can't do anything to reach up and grab it. We can't do anything to merit it or obtain it. No, we need him to reveal his love for us in us. Second, you must recognize, you must acknowledge that apart from Christ, you are indeed weak. You are ungodly. You are sinful. You are evil. You are, in your own right, an enemy of God. But if you believe in Christ, whom God sent, God's only Son, then the love of God has been poured out into your heart. God is your Father. The Holy Spirit has given you the love of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to say, you rest on Him, you receive Him as He is offered in the Gospel, you trust Him and in His sacrifice to save you from God's wrath, then you could be confident. You are justified. You're reconciled. You shall be saved. And dear friends, that is cause for rejoicing. Let us pray. Our blessed God, what have you withheld from us? Not even your own dear Son. Lord, your love for us is something that we will never, ever be able to adequately describe. And yet, Lord, in your word, you tell us, you showed us your love by sending your own beloved Son. We thank you and praise you for that. And Father, we pray that you would demonstrate that love. Put it in our hearts. Give us, O oh God, a grasp of that this evening. And if anyone has any doubt, O oh Lord, we ask that you would give them the grace to make certain that they are your child, that they have turned from their sins, that they have received your Son, that they have gotten the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of eternal life. We pray, O oh Lord, you would do these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.